This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm B.B. Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So I don't know about you, but I have been obsessively following Russia's unprovoked attack on Ukraine ever since it began back in February. Me too. Uh, You know, both of us have written about conflict. We've talked about it on the podcast many times, and we covered covered the prelude and beginning to this war on the podcast in episodes that we'll link to in the show notes. But even so, it feels like it's time to revisit what's happening there, because the past six weeks there have been simply astounding, just a time of huge victories for the Ukrainian forces, but also a time during which we've discovered great horrors that the retreating Russian army has left in its wake. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Beginning on September 6th, just to sort of summarize what's happened, the Ukrainian forces launched a counteroffensive in the uh, Kharkiv Oblast that was incredibly successful. Towns and cities that have been occupied since the start of the war were liberated, including Kupiansk and Izium. By September 13th, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said that Ukraine had recaptured 8,000 square kilometers of territory from the Russians. Which is just astonishing. And so now it's mid-October, and there's been a lot more activity in Ukraine since then, including another very successful counteroffensive in the Kherson region, liberating 450 square miles of territory as of October 9th, according to Reuters. And then more recently, we saw the attack on the Kerch Bridge between Russia and Crimea, which Russian President Vladimir Putin responded to by launching a bombing campaign across Ukraine, hitting infrastructure and also civilian targets. You saw the videos, right, of people in occupied areas welcoming Ukrainian soldiers with flowers and tears? I did. I mean, as I've said many times on this show, you know, I, I hate war. Uh, and in America, we have a long tradition of valorizing war, particularly our participation in World War II. And often that kind of valorization can be dangerous, I think, anyway. You know, like if you look at the late 1990s nostalgia for the greatest generation who fought in World War II, I think that made it much easier for George W. Bush to initiate his very mistaken invasion of Iraq. The movies were telling us at that time that war would be dramatic and character building, but it's not. Of course, it's terrible and and damaging. But Seeing genuinely dramatic, uh, seeing genuinely democratic forces liberating people from authoritarian fascist rule, as is happening in Ukraine, and there is something very powerful about that. I have to agree. I mean, I think especially after we spent the last five years of this podcast documenting the rise of authoritarian leaders around the globe, including here in the U.S., it's just. It's like Ukraine under Zelensky has become the beacon of democracy that America always imagines itself to be. That's true. And I'm pulling for them. Um, We've done several episodes, as I mentioned, about Russia's war in Ukraine, but now seems like a particularly good time to refocus on that conflict. And we're thrilled to have two Ukrainian guests today who are going to talk to us, not about what's happening on the ground right now, although you can go to their podcast and check that out and we'll tell you all about that in a minute, but they're going to talk to us about the literary antecedents to this war. In particular, what classic Russian literature, including Dostoevsky, can tell us about contemporary Russia and the mindset that has led to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what, which is exactly the kind of theory that this podcast exists to talk about. So today our guests are Tatiana Ogarkova and Vladimir Yermolenko, who are the co-hosts of the podcast Explaining Ukraine from UkraineWorld.org. 
Since 2015, Tatiana has been coordinating the International Department of the Ukrainian Crisis Media Center. She also teaches the history of French literature, theory of literature, and history of European literary avant-garde in Kyiv Mohila Academy. Welcome to the show, Tatiana. Hello. Uh, Vladimir Yermolenko is a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and author. He works as analytics director at Interviews Ukraine and as chief editor at ukraineworld.org and a senior lecturer at Kiev Mohila Academy. He is the editor of the 2019 book, Ukraine in Histories and Stories. He has received the Shevelyov Prize for Best Ukrainian Essays in 2018 and the Petro Mohila Prize in 2021. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm an avid listener to your podcast, which I recommend to all of our subscribers, and we'll put a link in our show notes to it. It's an excellent resource for what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, but we've invited you here to talk about literature, specifically Russian literature. Over the past few months, you both have talked about how you think Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, offers some crucial insight into the Russian people when it comes to this war that Russia has started in Ukraine, as well as into Putin himself. Could you outline the basic framework of that argument for our listeners? Well, let's start to um, let's start maybe discussing this point. Uh, uh, well, indeed, what we see with this uh, full-scale in, uh, invasion of Russian Federation into Ukraine, we see the importance of uh, cruelty and the absence of rules which are important for Russian society. And as far as we both, with Volodymyr, we are um, uh, we have Volodymyr, philosopher. I studied literature for many years, so we do understand, and we've read a lot of Russian literature before. So it gave us a kind of insight on what uh, Russian literature is. And if we talk about Dostoevsky and primarily about his novel um, Crime and Punishment, I was always astonished by the fact that the novel is mostly about crime but not in in fact, about punishment, because punishment itself is not very much discussed and described in this novel. You remember the main character, Raskolnikov, who kills um, two ladies, and then then he he uh, he he is captured finally. But he there is no description and no judgment. Uh, for Skolnikov and no real punishment. And we thought with Volodymyr that it might tell some story about the absence of uh, punishment in Russian culture. And what we see now, when we, what we observe now in this war, we see a kind of uh, injustice because Russian Russia can uh, can use uh, violence and uh, uh, I don't know missiles, whatever, against Ukraine. And uh, unfortunately, at that very moment, Ukraine doesn't have real means to respond. So this is something very deep in Russian culture about this impunity. So impunity is something uh, very proper to Russian culture, and uh, we think that there are some links in in Russian literature in Dostoevsky as well. Let me add also a few points. Uh, I think that, of course, uh, this doesn't mean that we kind of try to deny uh, uh, Russian literature a priori or we, we make a general judgment. We, we try to look for symptoms uh, which justify violence. And unfortunately, the symptoms are there. So this uh, kind of cutting the link between crime and punishment is one of the one of the very important sim symptoms because it also has its history in the russian culture for example the way how the stalinist uh, authors were justifying the 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 construction of gulag a, a major 
horrible uh, prison camp, uh, which uh, which is a symbol of of Stalinist repressions, and they were justifying it by the idea that look, we have to send all those people who are probably probably guilty of of belonging to some different class like bourgeoisie or peasants without really proving their uh, their their crime but we should send them to these camps in order to uh, reforge them as as they said at that at that time uh, to transform them to uh, to to put them into a, a different kind of people the Soviet, the homo sovieticos the, the soviet people and uh, it's it's really an important th- thing to reflect upon why uh, in a certain aspect of the Russian culture and Russian literature there is this link between crime and punishment is broken, why uh, there is a neglect to the law, neglect to, to the rules, and neglect to justice, and an idea that there can be no justice on this, uh, on this earth. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so the, 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 the demolition of the idea of justice is a very important symptom. This is so interesting to me. I, um, my family is Tamil and Sri Lankan, and impunity in Sri Lanka is also uh, deeply entrenched in the culture. And Russian literature is also, as it is in so many places, so popular. Um, so as you were just mentioning, Raskolnikov kills an old woman, and Whitney's going to read that passage, and then we can talk a little bit more about the novel's plot and characters in detail. Yeah, this is a pawnbroker who he's been plotting to kill, and then he ends up also killing um, her sister, Lizaveta, in a later scene. But this is the first murder in the book. He had not a minute more to lose. He pulled the axe uh, quite out, swung it with both arms, scarcely conscious of himself and almost without effort, almost mechanically, brought the blunt side down on her head. He seemed not to use his own strength in this, but as soon as he had once brought the axe down, his strength returned. The old woman was as always bareheaded. Her thin, light hair, streaked with gray, thickly smeared with grease, was plaited in a rat's tail and fastened by a broken horn comb, which stood out on the nape of her neck. As she was so short, the blow fell on the very top of her skull. She cried out, but faintly, and suddenly sank all of a heap on the floor, raising her hands to her head. In one hand, she still held, quote-unquote, the pledge. Then he dealt her another and another blow with the blunt side on the same spot. The blood gushed from an overturned glass. As from an overturned glass, the body fell back. He stepped back, let it fall, and at once bent over her face. She was dead. Her eyes seemed to be staring out of their sockets. The brow and the whole face was drawn and contorted convulsively. So that's the crime. (laughs) That takes place very early in the book, around page 70. Um, and the rest of the novel takes place after the crime. As you were talking about, Tatiana, there's not a lot of punishment during that, that particular part of the novel. But I wondered if you could talk about how Dostoevsky begins to separate that crime from punishment. How does Raskolnikov escape punishment? Why does he escape punishment? And I know you all have talked about the sort of the philosophical roots of the novel in French thinking about the time about um, rehabilitation, how to rehabilitate criminals. And I wondered if you could both talk about that. Maybe we'll start with Vladimir for that. Right. So uh, the, the topic of the crime and punishment is a central topic of the 19th century literature. And uh, it, it doesn't come from Russia. It actually comes from, uh, I would say, the early 19th century literature, primarily French literature, uh, people like uh, Honoré de Balzac or Victor Hugo, 
and why it is an important topic for them because the French culture after the French Revolution, after the execution of uh, of Louis Seize, uh, of uh, Louis the Sixteenth, uh, there were some elements in this in this culture, primarily the monarchy, so the conservatives and. Uh, Victor Hugo initially was a conservative, and uh, Balzac as well, uh, that were looking at this crime of regicide as something very dramatic and very ontological, metaphysical. And they were, they were saying that, look, there is this horrible crime, but then uh, there is something uh, in the society which this, these people called palangenesie, palangenetic, uh, transformation, the coming through death and suffering. So there is something in the in the society that can actually lead you to a better life, to a, a life which is morally better. And there were really uh, many of their characters, uh, inclu- including, for example, Les, Les Miserables de Victor Hugo or uh, some characters from the uh, human comedy of Balzac, uh, it's all about how people who made a crime or who made a mistake in their lives then go through a very dramatic period of transformation. And uh, the main character of Les Miserables is like that. And uh, this also led these people to a deep reflection. So, okay, how we can organize a society in the way that we take uh, people who made a crime and we try to give them a second chance. And this was, of course, one of the Victor Hugo uh, f- favorite topics when he when he was against the, the death penalty, etc. Uh, so we always have these people after they made a crime, right? And uh, they, they, they were trying to make sense of, of this suffering, of this punishment, maybe divine punishment, of human punishment. And they were trying to to understand how it can actually lead to, uh, to transforming a human being. What uh, Dostoevsky does? Dostoevsky does a, a, an, opposite, uh, an opposite thing, and that's, that's the most worrying thing about the novel. He was a, actually a translator of Balzac and Victor Hugo, and he has this phrase that one of the greatest topics of our time is the rehabilitation of the fallen human being. That's Dostoevsky's phrase. And I fully agree that this was a, a very important topic of that time and maybe for all human culture. But what Dostoevsky... And Raskolnikov is fascinated by the story of Lazarus, right? And he that, that story keeps coming up in the novel as well. And that's the same idea, I think. Exactly, exactly. About. But what, what is... What is very worrying in the way how Dostoevsky puts it. Dostoevsky invites us to think that there is no other way to kind of this transformation uh, except the crime. So you first has to make a crime and then you can through the development of your conscience, the, 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 the very difficult psychological process, you will go to some religious transformation that Dostoevsky leads us uh, to the end of the novel. So Dostoevsky doesn't say, okay, we, we, we see a, a person who made a crime and, uh, and tries to have the repentance for this crime. We see another, another plot. We see a, a, a person who is asking himself a question, this famous question, whether I am uh, 
a creeping creature or do I have the right? So basically, he's asking himself whether he is a underhuman being or superhuman being. And by killing uh, these two women, he becomes a superhuman being and then goes through this, you know, through, through the process of transformation. So the worrying thing is, is the message that you can only go to the superhuman uh, condition when you make a crime. And that's the, the horrible thing about this. And also, I've heard you both, and maybe Tatiana, you can comment on this, talk about the, the, the problem here is that also uh, Dostoevsky poses the idea that the only way you can be forgiven for or, be, or, or, or get over this crime is internal. It's not about the society punishing you. It's about how you feel about it, whether you're redeemed, right? Um, I wondered if you could talk about that as well, Tatiana. Yes, exactly. What is also extremely boring about this novel, what we see that Raskolnikov, um, uh, he has his, this choice to not to become somebody. I would say that the crime is linked to a kind of a subjectivity for Raskolnikov because in order to be somebody, to become somebody, he has to commit this crime. And when he does, so when he kills these two women, then there is a lone process, internal moral judgment, moral process inside of him. So he is trying to... Um, to reflect on that. But at the same time, what is uh, extremely striking and worrying about that plot, about this novel, is that there is no external um, uh, punishment, and no, no limits, no rules, in a way that they, as if there were a possibility to live in a society and to be judged only by yourself, not by your neighbors, not by your by other members of the society. This is something extremely, extremely subjective, and uh, I would say worrying as well, because it's not about the about punishment as itself, and it's not about rules, not about uh, objective punishment, and this transgression uh, necessary for Raskolnikov. Transgressions, uh, I mean, like he broke, he breaks the rule to break some everything about human behavior, about human life, about the your behavior in the society. It's necessary to become a subject to get this subjectivity, but uh, but uh, the punishment also comes from your own, and uh, I would say this uh, this is uh, dangerous. This is dangerous. And what we see now, the political uh, political situation now, it's a kind of a, kind of a continuation of this idea that nobody can judge uh, Russia in a way, but it can do it only by itself. You know, so it's as if as if there were nobody in the world but but yourself. That has such an interesting relation to just any idea of sovereignty and accountability, um, and. On your podcast earlier, um, Vladimir said that, Tatiana, you first began writing about this idea of crime without punishment in Russian culture all the way back in 2014, um, which would have been around the time of the Maidan protests in Ukraine, which were um, to like greatly truncate the issue prompted by Russian involvement and influence in Ukrainian politics. And I, I wonder if you two began as critics of Dostoevsky or, or did your view of his work change over time? Um, especially given Russia's increasing involvement in Ukrainian politics. 
Uh, well, I would say that the, we started noticing several things back in 2014, things we didn't notice before. Uh, we were born in Soviet Union, and for sure we've read Dostoevsky when we were, uh, I don't remember exactly, maybe 13 or 14 years old, so it was a kind of a, kind of a book uh, which we read quite, quite young at that moment, and we, in fact, didn't realize what the, the real meaning. But the most striking was this uh, story with Russian aggression, which started in 2014 with the annexation of the Crimea, with the occupation of the part of Donbass. Um, I studied uh, Daniel Harms. This is a Soviet, uh, Russian writer of Soviet times, who was killed by the system, by the way. And uh, he wrote this um, extraordinary um, text called Old Woman, Starucha in 39. It was his last uh, text before his death. And uh, and the idea there, it, he was rewriting Dostoevsky. And the idea was to describe the punishment without crime. So just the opposite of Dostoevsky. And to describe in a way a totalitarian society he was living in in the 30s. Imagine the same plot as in Dostoevsky, uh, the main character is in his room but then the old lady comes and she dies inside his room but he is not guilty of that but then everything was happening happening later it, it happens as if it was Dostoevsky plot so he is trying to get rid of this body trying to hide hide her and all other adventures and he's guilty even without committing a crime a good metaphor of a totalitarian society Russia became in Soviet times. And that was the moment um, uh, I understood that there is a kind of a link always broken between crime and punishment and punishment and crime. In Dostoevsky case, we have mostly crime without punishment. And in Harm's prose, we mostly have punishment without crime. But there is always a problem uh, in linking these two things. And uh, I would say there is something um, deeply Russian in that because this balance between crime and punishment is one of the important principles of the European society, European um, uh, culture. And um, unfortunately, in Russia, case, this link is broken. It's interesting to me when you provide those two choices, either you're going to have crime with no punishment or punishment with no crime. And if you're a Russian living under Putin now, you have that choice also. You can have, you can be, you can commit crimes with no punishment as the, as the Russian army is committing crimes in Ukraine right now, or you can be punished and thrown in jail by Putin for refusing to go along with what's happening, meaning you get punishment with no crime. And it would seem to me that most people would want to choose the crime with no punishment if you're in a system like that. Maybe that's what's one of the problems with Russia right now. Yes, exactly. So what we see with, with the mobilization, with mobilization, they're trying to flee the responsibility. They're punished for that, but uh, they can't commit any crime. Yeah. I also think that the, there is something that we, we should really reflect upon. That, uh, uh, and by the way, in our podcast, we linked this Dostoevsky's novel with with what's happening on the front line and with a uh, uh, very interesting article recently published by Ukrainian. Uh, key army chief Valery Zaluzhny, who was 
recently on the cover of the Time magazine. Uh, and Zaluzhny, with his colleague, wrote an article saying that the key thing about this war, and it, it was really fantastic to, 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 to hear that from a military man who is, you know, dealing with daily military operations, but who wrote a, a profoundly philosophical, I would say psychoanalytical article without maybe even noticing that, that key center of gravity of this war for Russia is the feeling of impunity. So the idea that they can do something to Ukraine, to the West, to the whole world, and there will be nothing, uh, nothing in return. So they will be not punished for that. Uh, they will, they will have no reaction on that. And maybe this is kind of a, this sadistic pleasure which is present in all totalitarian regimes. When you break this, uh, this idea of justice, you suddenly uh, start believing that. Uh, the idea of freedom is precisely the idea of impunity. So you can only be free when you impose your will on others without uh, others having an, any capacity to, to react on that. And, um, and that you can only be free when, uh, when you break the rules, including the rules of morality. And when we analyze that, of course, it, it doesn't mean that only Russian literature has that. I think the, there are some very worrying trends in, in every literature, maybe in every culture, this kind of seduction to think that freedom is about breaking the rules of justice, for example. Uh, as we with Tanya with studied also French literature, there is also some worrying symptoms in French, French literature as well. We can also look at the classical drama and, and uh, well, analyze even Shakespeare and ask a question, so why Shakespeare uh, puts so many bloody characters, the killers and, and uh, the tyrants, etc. But there is one thing that always strikes me in the classical drama, which I think uh, Crime and Punishment of Dostoevsky lacks, is that idea that uh, well, in classical drama, you you always have punishment without crime. So you you have the the the, the suffering of innocent people, starting from the Sophocles, Euripides, Aeschylus, whatever from the classical Greek drama. But you all very rarely you have crime without punishment. So you you always have the the idea that those who commit crime will sooner or later will be will be punished like Macbeth or King Lear or, or whatever else. And I think this is, this is very important. This is a very important message in, in, in culture that uh, when, when people understand that the crime will, will sooner or later will be punished by divine punishment or human punishment or by justice. I think that there is this element which lacks in Russian culture. And my interpretation is that the very idea of law and justice is absent in the uh, orthodox orthodox version of Christianity or this Moscow version of orthodox version of Christianity, uh, and it comes very early actually, and uh, it, it it has these roots in a very denigrating idea of the law, uh, which was associating the idea of religion as law with. Uh, with ancient testament, with uh, Jewish tradition or Roman tradition or whatever. And I think this is very dangerous because, of course, religion can give you something bigger than the law. 
but it is important that religion also gives you the, the, the very basic idea of justice, morality, moral rules, etc. And when you look at crime and punishment of Dostoevsky, you precisely see this denigrating attitude to, to, to the law, to human justice. And the only way out that is given to us by Dostoevsky is this religious uh, illumination, right? Uh, something, something but which goes beyond, uh, beyond the law and justice. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Well, we have a lot of people in America, unfortunately, uh, who think that religion is more important than the law, even though officially our government is supposed to separate religion and the law. Um, but the conservative right here is, is, is going down the same road that you're talking about. So you've been mentioning, you know, of course, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how Russia's attitude toward the law is different from Ukraine's attitude or, or how you might characterize a Western attitude or how this might be affecting the way that Russian troops conduct themselves. Because the news is now, of course, full of um, evidence that Russian troops have been committing atrocities. So, uh, yes, exactly. What we see now is that... Uh What's happening now, for example, in these days, Russia organized this uh, referenda in occupied territories and then proclaimed these territories annexed to, to the Russian Federation itself. I call that the war against the reality, in fact. So in a way, Russia is a very, very literary country because uh, this is a war against reality because nobody recognizes this referendum. And in Ukraine, in abroad, United States, Europe, nobody. Everybody understands that this uh, annexation is the consequence of the weakness of the Russian army. Uh, on the on, on the ground, their troops are unable to progress to capture more. There were um, quite a big number of defeats already in Kiev region, in uh, Chernigiv region, Sumy, back in March, uh, April, and then uh, now what we observe, we observe a kind of a counteroffensive of the Ukrainian army on the ground, and um, this is linked to the law and the understanding of the law. Uh, when they when Russia cannot win, they invent uh, an alternative reality. And uh, they are trying to create this uh, alternative reality where uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporizhzhia and Kherson, they are Russian, and where their country, which is uh, already weakening uh, under sanctions, and they have already lost uh, quite a big number of troops, like uh, almost 60,000 Russian soldiers have already lost their lives during this war. But still, Russia does everything to present as if it was powerful, strong, and uh, a superpower, in fact, of, in the region. And so it means that they are inventing things instead of uh, being something. And uh, so this kind of an imagination in a way, is, a, is an important thing in Russia because this is a kind of a compensation. They, the lack of the reality, they try to compensate with these uh, ideas, with this mess of their own strengths and with their own uh, reality, their own agenda. And it contradicts, sure enough, sure enough uh, any kind of uh, um, agreement and any kind of law, any kind of so consensus between the law 
and consensus, it exists between partners, between uh, different parts. It's about uh, a community, international community. It's about uh, different countries. And there is a profound disrespect Russia shows to, to others bec just because it, it, it is in, in the state of war against uh, the reality itself. So I have a question about that because we've been talking all this conversation about the idea of impunity in Russian culture and the idea that you that making an, an, an act like um, Raskolnikov makes, do, committing crime is what makes you superhuman, right, or powerful. So why does Putin go through the motions of democracy, doing fake elections in the, in the areas that he's trying to annex in, in Ukraine and announcing that there's been a vote Instead of just saying, like, I'm taking this, it's mine, why does, it, why does he go through the imitating democracy, a sort of fake democracy, instead of just doing it and saying, well, I'm just taking this? Well, this is a, this is a good question. And I think the, the answer to it is that we over-exaggerate over the Russian capacity to create some new sense or new meanings. Uh, the vocabulary of Russian culture is profoundly Western. So when Russia opposes itself to the West, it, it is doing it with Western terms. It is doing it with the terms of, with the concepts which were born in, uh, in uh, Europe or America. Uh, in, uh, in the concept Russian Federation, there is no Russian word because Russian is a Scandinavian word. Uh, Rus is a, is a word used by the Scandinavian Vikings who came to, uh, to Eastern Europe in uh, Middle Ages and uh, uh, together with the local people in Kiev established a powerful state. Uh, in the in the first in the on the brink between uh, the first millennium and uh, the second millennium, and uh, the federation you, you you perfectly know is is not a Slavic word word right is not a Russian word. Uh, Putin is called president and not Vost, for example, or even not a Tsar. Tsar is also not a Russian word. And if you look at the, the name, how the Russian institutions are called, you will not find too many Russian words there. We were talking about Dostoevsky. Well, when Russians are saying that they will rather, you know, uh, turn themselves from uh, the West to China... Well, Dostoevsky was not inspired by Chinese poets and writers. And Pushkin was, uh, the, the classic Russian poet, was writing, rather imitating French culture of Rococo than, uh, than uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese poetry, right? So uh, Russians are trying to show to the West that they are actually something different from the West, but they are still describing themselves in the Western terms. So they are rather saying, okay, we are the Asia of Europe, you know, this, this irrational part, this maybe dark part, uh, or some alternative, uh, some alternative side of it. And I think we just need to understand it. We we just need to understand that all this blackmail that okay, we will go go to China. They're just they're just also part of this Russian blackmail, because uh, if they have any roots. In any culture, this will be primarily the, the, the European, mostly European culture. 
maybe adding to that and what Tanya was saying and uh, about this referendum, we should also understand that Russians are waging the war not only against the reality. One of the, the enemies of the Russian culture, intellectual culture, which we studied a lot with Tatiana uh, at, at a certain time of our personal histories, is the struggle against the formal logic. And this is also the deep uh, tradition of the Russian philosophy. The, uh, the hatred towards the Western rational tradition of philosophy uh, and literature. The hatred to, uh, towards, for example, Catholic scholasticism. Uh, if, if a Russian philosopher would choose between Aristotle and Plato, he or she would choose, of course, Plato with this dialectical logic or something like that. Uh, this neglects this kind of a hatred towards the idea of the formal logic, of the idea that A equals A, is very profoundly, very profound in, in Russian culture. And uh, therefore, Tuchev has said that you cannot understand Russia with reason. Right? And this goes from the 19th century religious philosophy to the 20th century Marxist philosophy. Therefore, in Russia, Marxism with this idea of dialectical logic was so popular. So, but what is dialectical logic in a, in a nutshell? It's an idea that uh, a thing can easily be turned into its opposite and vice versa. And therefore, you can proclaim a victim. You can say that a victim is actually a... A, a rapist, a victim of the rape is actually a rapist, or a victim of the genocide is actually a genocider. That's what Russians were saying about Ukrainians all the time since the 18th and 19th century, about the Caucasian people, people who, whom they conquered, they were saying, look, they are actually cruel people. And therefore, we, we have conquered that. Maybe this is also present in American context. You know it much better than us with regard to how the you know, American propaganda of the 19th, 20th century were portraying the, uh, the indigenous population. Maybe there is always this parallel of colonialism, right? And uh, uh, therefore, they are now saying, okay, we occupied parts of the Ukrainian land, but then we will declare this land as Russian and note, note that they are declaring... Uh, lands as Russian, not those they de facto control right now, but much bigger territories. They are now saying that, look, Ukrainians are occupiers. Ukrainians have occupied uh, the Russian lands. So this is this kind of a dialectical uh, logic. And if you want to understand it, just go read Orwell. I think George Orwell in 1984 gave an, a, a fantastic description of that. Freedom is sl slavery, uh, war is peace, etc., uh, etc. Et so this an ability to turn the world upside down. So I have no idea if Vladimir Putin reads Dostoevsky. Um, he has, as we noted at the top of the show, and, and I should say we're recording this uh, on September 30th. We're having this conversation on September 30th, and it's evening there for you. And um, so that's the point in the news that we're at. And he's taken a lot of losses in this war. You mentioned the number um, 60,000 earlier. And and he has been forced to call up some 300,000, maybe many more, reservists into the armed forces. And there are now open protests. And we've all seen videos of long lines of cars at the border before the airports were um, not allowed to fly people um, in this category out, long lines at the airport um, as Russians try to flee the country to escape fighting in this war that um, 
trying to escape both the crime and the punishment, as Whitney mentioned earlier. What are the chances that Putin's many crimes, including starting this war, go unpunished? Our belief is that uh, this time he will not be able to uh, avoid the punishment because we are talking now about principles. Um, we followed this war from the very beginning, from 2014, and we un do remember how this lack of understanding from Western partners of Ukraine. We are trying to explain that this war of Russia against Ukraine is not only about Ukraine, for many years already, but now we feel that many people start to understand what's going on. Because uh, if we look at the situation as it is, we'll see that this is not be be only because Russia wants uh, just another region, just another Ukrainian region, uh, be it uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Dnipro, or even Kyiv. This is uh, this is a war of uh, principles. This is a democ this is a democracy against autocracy or totalitarian society against democracy. The idea, and this is precisely why uh, there is no other way for for Western partners of Ukraine, United States, Great Britain, uh, European Union, uh, all the Western world. There is no way to let Putin win. Uh, because if he wins, it will be a way out for many, many other countries which will do the same. And the same thing could be told about nuclear strikes, which is the subject of this blackmailing all the time. So I think this is something, something very existential for our civilization now. And Ukraine, uh, we feel that we, we are no more alone against Putin, but we are kind of... Uh, I would even say coalition, but there's a lot of partners against this system, against this way of thinking and against this way of acting. And it gives us an idea that one day there will be a military defeat for Russia. And even more importantly, it will be a public, uh, public punishment for war criminals, for Putin personally, but for much more people around him uh, and his soldiers for all the crimes and all uh, atrocities they committed because there is no other way for democracy and for democratic world to survive. I would add that uh, we, should, we should understand that this evil, its characteristics of the current evil, is that it is a repeated evil. It's the evil that has been repeating itself all and all over again. Because uh, <clears throat> Putinism is the hair of St Stalinism. Stalinist crimes were never fully condemned in the world. Uh, of course, there were some you know, condemnation of the excesses of, 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 of Stalinism, whatever. But uh, Russia as the hair of the Soviet Union was never, for example, forced to pay anything to, to the countries that suffered from, from the Moscow regime of the 30s, uh, 40s, 50s, etc., right? Uh, contrary to Nazi Germany. There was no Nuremberg process over communism uh, in the Stalinist or Leninist version as it was over Nazism. Uh, when Ukraine started the decommunization process, it was 
widely perceived in the democratic world as something as an attack on freedom and democracy and freedom of expression, rather as the idea that we finally need to restore justice and uh, say clearly who are the victims and who are the perpetrators. So I think we're we're just, uh, you know, bearing fruit of this cycle of the unpunished crime and this broken justice uh, about which we started talking uh, earlier. And of course, Stani is absolutely right that uh, this is the point where this evil should be brought to justice. Uh, Vladimir and Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just can't tell you how much I've, I've really enjoyed and, and appreciated uh, and the insight that you've given to me listening to your podcast, Explaining Ukraine from ukraineworld.org. And we hope our listeners will join you there and we wish you the best. So thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!